Hello and welcome everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the .NET on AWS show. My name is Brandon Minnick and with me as always is my amazing co-host Francois. Francois, how was your week? Uh, fine, fine. It was a Northern week at NDC Copenhagen. Uh, we were both together there and it was really amazing. Uh, an amazing conference, uh, amazing speaker. So, yeah, definitely a great week uh, there uh, with the community. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And, and you, Brendan, how do you feel <laughs> this, this week? Oh, I mean, I'm super biased because, yes, we were, we were both at NDC Copenhagen. If you haven't heard of the NDC conferences as a .NET developer, look them up, go. They're incredible. Um, NDC actually stands for Norwegian Developers Conference, but over the years, they've expanded far outside of Norway. Like we were just at the conference in Copenhagen. Uh, they have conferences in Sydney and obviously in Oslo, London, uh, Minneapolis here in the US. Um, so NDC is kind of, it's like kind of KFC nowadays. Like I think KFC used to stand for Kentucky Fried Chicken, but then they expanded to China and they're like nobody knows what that means here. So we're just KFC. But yes, NDC, one of the best conferences you'll go to. And they have one coming up. I'll be speaking at the one in Porto, gosh, just next month in October. So maybe I'll see you in Porto. So yeah, Francois, so. we've got <laughs> yeah, we got a couple couple announcements this week. Um, I think you've got the fun one. I've got the sad one. So I'll I'll start with the sad news, um, yeah. and that way we can get the show on a happy note before we bring in our amazing guest. But yeah, if you haven't heard about it. And maybe you're one of the rare .NET developers like me who does a lot of work on their Mac. The uh, Microsoft announced they are deprecating Visual Studio for Mac. I think it's got about a year left until they'll uh, end support on it. So it's kind of a it's an end of an era for me. Certainly, it was actually it used to be called Xamarin Studio. When I worked at Xamarin, we had created this IDE so you could create your Xamarin apps on both macOS and Windows. And then shortly after Microsoft acquired Xamarin, rebranded it into Visual Studio on the Mac, which I always thought was a terrible idea because if you're going to call it Visual Studio, it should probably be the same as Visual Studio on the PC, when in reality, it was always just made for Xamarin developers like me. So I've always loved it. I still use it. I, I, I am still using it. Um, but for any other fellow Mac developers or .NET developers on the Mac, check out JetBrains Rider. I... I'm going to be moving over there. Um, I've been actually pushed <laughs> for a couple of years now or poked, um, told that, why are you still using VS for Mac? You should use Rider. It's amazing. So I know it's it's really good. Uh, it's supported .NET MAUI. Actually, before even Visual Studio for Mac supported .NET MAUI. So I'm excited about that. And then you see all of our amazing community members. Like if you ever watch a, a video of Nick Chapsis on YouTube, he's always using JetBrains Rider and... I was just watching a video the other day and, of his and all the, the shortcuts and how quick he was able to code has actually got me excited. So I'm sad, but excited to learn a new tool and hopefully increase productivity. But with the sadness out of the way, Francois, what's coming up? Yes, um, I have a, a fun fun thing coming up. So we are on tour. AWS is going on tour in, in Europe um, starting uh, in uh, September 18. Um, we, the tour is starting in London. So uh, 
short story, we, we are taking a bus. So to be, to be honest, the bus will start only in Paris. So the first date is, um, if in London, uh, in, on September uh, 18. It is a one, one day um, conference for software developers. So this conference is really crafted. Uh, I'm working on the agenda with uh, my, my peers. It is really crafted for software developers. That's uh, our target audience. And you will learn a lot about all the cool tools and services we have for a software developer and how you, you can be more productive using uh, those tools. Because to, to be honest, we've discovered uh, through surveys that many of you uh, don't know about these tools and how they can. Like I, I know you, 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 uh, you are recording some videos about the AWS Toolkit, Brandon, and um, th those tools can really help you to to get up at speed when you are using, um, for example, Visual Studio Code, Rider. You, you were speaking about Rider. Um, we have the toolkit for for Rider. So during this full day, uh, one, uh, only one track, um, we will uh, show you how you can. So, and it is really our target, show. We don't want to tell, we want to show. So you can expect a lot of demo during this day. And um, cherries on the cake, uh, there will be some booths with folks from service team. So you can expect to meet some folks from the service team uh, during uh, those uh, those days. So Thursday is uh, in London on September 18th. Then uh, we are taking the Eurostar to go to Paris. Uh, so it's on Wednesday uh, 20, um, 20. And then we, we jump into the bus, go to Brussels, Amsterdam, um, Frankfurt, Zurich, uh, Milan, Lyon, and Barcelona. So nine cities in three weeks. Um, and we, you can also expect a lot of a lot of videos on the social networks. So this will be a, a three intense week where, where we want to meet you where you are uh, in your cities and we want to chat with you. So don't um, hesitate to register for, for your dates. Uh, I think we, we have uh, the link um, for uh, the register. And uh, this will be really um, a, a great event. So expect a lot of fun, a lot of swag also. Ooh, free stuff. Is the, uh, are the events free yep. too? Cool. Yes, the event is completely free. Amazing. Well, go, go see it. I mean, why not, right? Other than Francois being exhausted at the end of three weeks, traveling all around on a bus. <laughs> Yeah. I'm picturing like a big, a big tour bus that, you know, like famous rock bands tour around in and all of our awesome speakers and product managers yeah. and engineers getting off the bus. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. We're basically rock stars now. This is, <laughs> yes, that's exactly the size of the bus. Big bus. Uh, have, uh, we will be even able to record you inside the bus because it will, there will be a place to record you inside the bus. So I think it will be kind oh. of crazy. And uh, AWS on tour. Don't miss it. Yeah. Well, Francois, we have a, an amazing, amazing guest this week. So I don't want to take up any more of his time. He's yeah. also basically part of the show. If you've watched previous episodes, you've seen him, you've seen him host before. So without further ado, James Eastman, welcome to the show. 
I was almost terribly tired of coughing. Gotcha. Gotcha mid cough. Luckily, yeah. you were muted, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good. James, I, I appreciate you coming back on the show. Uh, if, if you haven't seen James before, he's hosted a couple episodes uh, with me, with Francois of the show in the past. But James, for anybody who doesn't know you, who are you and what do you do? Um, yeah. So I'm a professional services consultant here at AWS. Um so what that means is I actually function much like any consultant you'd get in the world that like I actually go out to AWS customers and work with them to help them build things. So we kind of have two types of customer-facing people at AWS. We've got solutions architects and we've got professional services. Solutions architects are typically more high-level design, roadmap, helping customers look at what they want to do, or adopt new services. Professional services actually get hands-on and build things. Um so that's my day job. I kind of like to say like by day I do that. And then by night I do all things serverless. Um, so my big area of interest is serverless development. Um, I've been working with Lambda and .NET, I think since Lambda and .NET was first a thing. I think I can't remember, .NET Core 2, I think was the first version of .NET and Lambda. I can't remember. Um, I kind of missed the whole containers ecosystem. So I went from like deploying things manually onto servers to Lambda. Yay. So whenever people talk to me about containers and Kubernetes, I kind of just gloss over a little bit and um, <laughs> I kind of missed that. What is this Lambda. for? Yeah. Why do you need containers? Why do you <laughs> ever need containers? Exactly. What do, you, what do you mean? I could, what? Do you need all this for? <laughs> anyway, so yeah. So I kind of missed all that. That um, I'm kind of backtracking now because I need to do some stuff with containers with the customers I'm working with. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's my big area of interest is serverless and .NET. Um, I do do a little bit of stuff with Java as well. Am I allowed to say that on the show? Um, of course. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Java. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. That's um, that's that's kind of what I do. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible, James. Um, I. I am so, so thankful uh, that we have somebody like you at AWS because, you know, if, if you're not following James, if you're not following him on Twitter at Plant Power James, if you're not following him on, on YouTube at, at Serverless James, um, you're missing out on a lot of really incredible content. And what's, what's even more impressive to me is if, if you worked or if you didn't work at AWS, you might think that James actually works on the Lambda team because he puts in so much work. Um, he literally develops libraries and submits pull requests. And as far as I can tell, James, are you just doing that in your free time? That's incredible. Yeah. Um, I always, I think, I think one of the, one of the, one of the benefits I've got is that I, the only real dependency I have is my dog. Like I don't have <laughs> families. Or they, I've got a girlfriend, but she's quite, she's, she's away a lot. So she's quite understanding about stuff like that. Um, so yeah, mostly um mostly just free time stuff um it's something i'm like i say, i'm i'm incredibly passionate about because um when i think about some of the systems i've built in my career when i was building things on like vms and stuff like that there's so much involved in just getting started before you can even build anything um and i think what services like lambda and serverless technologies give you is that really quick way to validate an idea so it might not necessarily be that you might build an app and it might never it might not run on lambda long term but that ability to quickly prove an idea 
for very little cost because your idea doesn't work, nobody you don't pay anything for it. And you get a million free invokes a month month on Lambda forever. Like that's just how it is. Um I, I yeah, I just I just love talking about it because it's just so powerful <laughs> people getting started, especially in in the whole .NET community, because um it's it's a bit of a paradigm shift if you're building purely serverless things, and we might get into some of this if I share some stuff. Um it's such a a, a paradigm shift in terms of how you're used to building applications as a .NET developer. Um, so the content needs to be created. <laughs> so, but I took it on my right. side to do it. Um, yeah. Give the people what they want. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you mentioned uh, the paradigm shift, and and I'll say I'm I'm heavily biased. I'm with you. I I love serverless. I use it for my mobile apps that I have in the app store, uh, mostly because. I don't make any money off the mobile apps. So if I can have a free backend, well, I can afford that. Yeah. But the to me, the, the biggest uh, kind of thing you got to know or be aware of is what we call cold start times. And you know, I have some tricks where I've worked around that so you don't notice it in my app. But what what are those cold start times? And kind of what, what direction are we headed in? Uh, or this, the Lambda team... What direction is the Lambda team heading in um, to bring those down and make things uh, just simpler? So we don't necessarily, maybe one day in the future, we don't have to have this conversation because it's like, oh, yeah, there is a cold start time, but you wouldn't even notice it. Blink of an are eye. You to, are you trying to tease some insider information out to me, Brandon? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> a little bit. I'm trying to, what's, what's coming for .NET 8? Do we have that? <laughs> no, no, no. What, what, let's start with cold starts and let's just I'm just very quickly trying to open up a deck from a talk I gave last week because it's got some really good things on cold starts and what a cold start actually is because there may be people listening who are hearing about Lambda for the first time um, so let me just share screen if I can work out how to do this again on StreamYard Stream 1, is it going to be Screen 1 or Screen 2? Yeah, you don't want that screen. You don't all want to look at yourselves, do you? Um, <laughs> so for anyone who's unfamiliar, um, a cold start in Lambda is something that happens the first time a request hits the version of your Lambda function. And there's a set of things that need to happen before the request can actually be processed. Um, so when a request comes into Lambda, the, there is a service that we call the worker service, um, sometimes the front-end service, that is going to look around to see if there is an execution environment available. What an execution environment is, is just a self-contained, really lightweight container running on top of a micro VM. Um, and the, the, the worker service is going to look to see if there is a current execution environment for that specific version of your Lambda function. If there isn't, it needs to create one of these execution environments. So it'll go off, it'll create the execution environment as they start up the container. It'll download your application code. That might be from a zip file on S3. That might be a container image in ECR. It'll boot up the runtime. That would be the .NET runtime. And then it'll actually run the initialization part of your application code, which in the .NET world is typically your constructor, the, the constructor of the class that um, has got your handler in it. After all that has happened, then the request will actually be passed to your function. And that first bit is what, what you'd know as a cold start. Um, that varies from runtime to runtime. 
So runtime's like Rust, to give an extreme example, that can be like single digit millisecond, double digit milliseconds. Like it's, it's not even fair how fast Rust is. Um, <laughs> in the in the in the other end of the spectrum is yeah, and the other end of the spectrum is is Java, which historically Java could could be up to seven, eight, nine seconds of cold start. Um, .NET sits somewhere in the middle, so, so typically I see for a single purpose Lambda function that's got one job, you might be looking at 700, 800, 900 milliseconds into the maybe low single digit seconds. Um, and there's a really good repository that we have on GitHub, AWS, that has benchmarks for all the various different ways of running .NET on Lambda. Um, another important thing about code starts is uh, or execution environments in general is that each of these execution environments will only ever process one request at any one time. So what that means is that if 10 requests hit your Lambda function at exactly the same millisecond, you're likely to get 10 code starts at the same time. That's, that's just likely what's going to happen. And then these execution environments will stick around for a period of time, which means if another request comes in, it doesn't need to do the code start. You've got a warm start then, so we know as a warm start, um, and that will typically be, you know, .NET is as as we all know, .NET is fast. Like once warm, .NET is incredibly fast. Um, it's that cold start that can take a little bit more time for, um, for applications. I, I have a question for you, James. J just yes. uh, for for people .NET are more familiar with, I would I would say the old .NET framework runtime and IAS, for example. So. To me, it looks like when you, you just deploy your new .NET framework web application on IIF, if you try to send 10 requests when, when it is bootstrapping, you will experience the exact same issue. Your IIF server will be slow and uh, the first few requests will be very long to get an answer. Mm -hmm. And while your uh, application server is warm, it is quite fast. So it's look it it looks like the thing. In fact, I think it's a really interesting point you raised there, Francois. And something I've thought a few times is if you think about um, a workload that might need to scale predictably or unpredictably, Lambda will scale more quickly than an application running on an EC2 instance, right? Because if an EC2 instance needs to scale, the, the auto-scaling needs to trigger, the instance needs to launch, the Windows needs to load, IIS needs to load, all this stuff needs to happen. So yeah, I'd, I'd agree, although Lambda cold starts can be impactful, if you compare that to the cold start of a server, <laughs> yep. yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and there's, there's, some, there's some things you can do with Lambda to kind of get around that. So you've got provision concurrency is a feature of Lambda where you can set a certain number of execution environments to always be available. Um, and initially, you might think that means it's not going to scale to zero. That's going to cost me loads of money. Um, but if you actually look at the pricing of provision concurrency, provision concurrency is cheaper than on-demand Lambda, providing you utilize the concurrency. So if you if you this varies region to region because pricing changes region to region, but in US East 1, and don't quote me on this exact number, um, providing you're using over, I think it's about 60% of your provision concurrency, provision concurrency is cheaper than on-demand. Um, so, so, and you can auto-scale your provision concurrency, you can spin that up and down, and obviously if you burst past your provision concurrency, 
then you'll just get cold starts. You're not limiting yourself to that number of requests. Um, so that that's just a really interesting one, one to come back to your question at the start, Brandon. That's like one strategy for handling cold starts. If you have some kind of relatively predictable workload, then you could use provision concurrency to handle that. Um, and then if you get that right, get your, your provisioning right, you can actually save yourself some money, um, which is really interesting. I, I, I only learned this maybe a month ago, two months ago. I was like, whoa, that's cool. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually, <clears throat> like, first of all, I mentioned we were both in Copenhagen for NDC Copenhagen last week um, and was chatting with uh, Martin Thwaites, another friend of the show. Yeah. Yeah. And he was saying how uh, his company heavily uses uh, Lambda and serverless. And so their their whole backend actually runs on serverless. And it wasn't until I was chatting with him last week that I learned you could do that. And he was explaining almost exactly the same thing where, yeah, they, they have a couple essentially instances already warmed up. And then, yeah, the great thing is if they need more, it just automatically scales for them. So they mm-hmm. try to, yeah, they, they try to dial in that number. So it's the most optimized for both cost and their user experiences. Um, but it was really cool learning and hearing him uh, explain how yeah, their entire backend is serverless and they have, you know, well, I don't know how many users, but I would assume millions <laughs> of users, yeah. uh, at least millions of requests every day on, on Lambda. Uh, so, so yeah, that's really cool. Um, and yeah, I was looking at, I'm taking a peek at the, uh, uh, the link we just shared because this is, this is where you can find, uh, benchmarks that we have for, for cold start times versus warm start times. Um, if I'm being honest, warm start times are basically negligible. I'm looking at these charts and it's like nine milliseconds. Mm-hmm. And you know, do I really care about nine milliseconds? Not really. Like internet connections can fluctuate by nine milliseconds. Um, but yeah, even looking at the cold start times, there's some that are getting down as low as uh, 200, 300 milliseconds. And that is actually where... As a, as a mobile developer, that's kind of where I target. Uh, I don't know if you can zoom in a little bit, James. If, I can't. That'll I work. can't. For some reason, I can't scroll <laughs> down. Oh, the page is still on. The page is still on. Uh, yes, uh, I was going to do that. I just can't seem to scroll, weirdly. Um, but there we go. But yeah, like literally like a, a blink of an eye. Like when a human eye blinks, it takes about 300, 350 milliseconds. And not coincidentally, that's kind of about the perceived amount of time that we can detect. So... In the world of mobile, like if you tap a button on my app, and as long as I give you feedback bef- within 300, 350 milliseconds, you won't even notice. Um, obviously, if it takes three seconds after you tap a button for my app to do something, you'll be like, what happened? This app froze for three seconds. I definitely noticed that. Um, maybe 600 milliseconds, you might be like, eh, that felt a little weird. I don't know why it felt weird because it was less than a second, but I noticed something. But yeah, when we get down towards... 300, I mean, I'm seeing 260 milliseconds. At that point, I don't even know if I'm going to tell people <laughs> about cold start times if they're that good. Um, but yeah, how do we, how's this happening? How are we getting in this low? So that's, yeah. So the, this is all using native AOT. That's been one of the big recent .NET developments that have really helped with Lambda. Um, so native ahead of time compilation for anyone who is listening, who didn't know is a feature of .NET that went GA in .NET 7 that 
basically generates a natively compiled binary, um, which kind of completely removes the need for jitting. It really massively increases your startup um, startup performance. Um, and yeah, it's just a really cool new feature of, of .NET. So these numbers, if I scroll back up back to this to give a, a bit of comparison. So this is .NET 6. Um, and .NET 6, if we look at like .NET 6, a basic x86 Lambda function. Um, your code starts, you've got 700 milliseconds at P50, 966 at P90, 1.4 seconds at P99. Um, but that's, and what does that P stand for? What's, what's a P50, James? So that's the, the 50th percentile. Um, so, so 50% of requests were 778 milliseconds. The, the, na- the above 90% of the requests were 966. Above 99% of the requests were 1.4 seconds. Um, I think I've explained that right. That's kind of, <laughs> you made me question my own understanding of the word percentile. <laughs> <That's>... Thanks, Brandon. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so yeah, and, and to be absolutely clear with these numbers, actually. So these numbers are only Lambda. What I mean by that is you've got a request that hits API Gateway if you're using API Gateway. That's got then there's some latency between API Gateway and Lambda and then back again. This is purely the Lambda part, not the re- the latency between API Gateway and Lambda. Um, so this will probably, be, and that's typically very small, but the actual numbers you'll see will probably be slightly higher than this. Um, this is purely Lambda, like I said. Um, so the other thing I will point out about these numbers, actually, is when I run these benchmarks. Uh, so the way we run these benchmarks, if I scroll up a bit, a bit further, we have a really simple, um, there's a diagram on here somewhere. Oh, my computer is not happy today. There it is. Um, so we've got a relatively simple CRUD API that has um, API gateway with four separate Lambda functions behind it to get, list, create, and delete products. Um, and it does that against the DynamoDB table. That's kind of the architecture of what we run this against. And then we run a 100 requests a second for 100 requests a second for 10 minutes against the API endpoints. And then we use that to generate these numbers that you're seeing here. So that's how we actually run the benchmarks. Um, the last time I run these, there was about 150,000 invokes of Lambda. About 500 of them were cold starts. So if you want to do some quick maths about what percentage of requests that is that were actually cold starts, I don't want to do that maths. <laughs> and that's because, as you kind of said, as you kind of said, Brandon, like at warm start, .NET is fast. So if you think you've got the one of these execution environments get get created because each individual request is taking single digit milliseconds to respond, that means that execution environment is available again and again and again and again and again. So these same subset of execution environments can be reused. And this is a really interesting thing about Lambda is when you're developing, every time you publish a new version of your code, you are guaranteed to see a cold start because that's a new version of your application code, which means you need a new execution environment. So as you're develop, developing, you might think, ah, oh, cold starts are happening so often. Like There's so many cold starts. Ah. <laughs> um, but then actually, and I always say this to people, run something like a production load against that same function. You've got a million free inbox. So just run something like some kind of production load and use that as your baseline to see if code starts at a problem. Not if not the um, developer experience, if you will, because that will be slow, guaranteed. So anyway, this is a- <laughs> <That's> numbers. <laughs> I love this stuff because uh, I I like 
I'm that weird guy that likes going deep into the .NET runtime to figure out how it works. And mm-hmm. yeah, I literally just gave a talk on async await where we show like the compiler generated code and all that fun stuff. Um, so for here with, yeah, with AOT, um, if, if you've never heard of that before, like James mentioned, it stands for ahead of time compilation. Um, you, you might assume that uh, .NET is already ahead of time compiled because, well, we have the compiler in Visual Studio and I, I tap build, which compiles my app. So what the heck's going on? Well, what the compiler is actually doing is it's lowering your code to uh, intermediate language, so IL. Uh, if you're familiar with like assembly logic, it's kind of like that low level language. Um, but then one of the reasons why .NET is so fast is because what it does is it actually also compiles that code just in time. So that's JIT, just in time compilation when you run it. So typically, yeah, if you have a web server running ASP.NET Core, um, it's as, as soon as that code's about to run, the .NET compiler just in time compiles it. And one of the benefits there is because the compiler is kind of running side by side with the code is it can optimize our code. So as our code's running, that just-in-time compiler can see like which branch is being used. Like you got an if statement here, and 99% of the time it always goes inside the if statement. So the .NET compiler can basically start loading that code, assuming it's going to go there. And if 99% of the time it does, then it's just optimized itself and saved a bunch of time. So it's it's really interesting how .NET works under the hood, <laughs> uh, but. Also, yeah, with AOT, it basically compiles all those bits ahead of time. So um, basically, it's got to, you know, think of all like the system libraries, like system.daytime and all that stuff that we get for free in .NET. That's got to be compiled. Um, so AOT does result in a slightly bigger app, like your, your DLL, your binary is going to be a little larger because it's got to also kind of include that compiled .NET code. <laughs> But yeah, the performance benefits we see are amazing. And it's actually something we've used and recommended a long time for our uh, .NET MAUI apps, Xamarin apps, because with mobile apps, there's a rule where if they don't load within three seconds, then typically a user will assume the app's frozen, it'll force quit it, probably give you a one-star review and delete the app off their phone. Uh, so we, we've been trying to optimize our startup times in the mobile app world forever. And so it's it's really cool to see kind of the this correlation in this allegory with serverless, where kind of the same idea, right? Like we need this code starting as fast as possible. How do we do it? And now I love seeing uh, .NET entering this world of AOT because we've been using it for years in mobile, so it works. <laughs> I'm excited about it, and yeah, like James mentioned, it AOT did uh, debut with .NET seven, um, and. But the .NET team was still kind of like, you know, use it, but test it first. Because, you know, we're we're confident, but we're not confident in it. Um, but with .NET 8, now I'm seeing that confidence. That go ahead, yeah, go ahead and use it. Uh, AOT is a thing now. Uh, you can trust us. <laughs> and so I, I can't wait because, um, yeah, if, if my backend takes 200 milliseconds to spin up, Great. Users won't even notice that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And one of the super interesting things that's coming in, in .NET A is the ASP.NET support, albeit minimal at first, like it's not full ASP.NET. 
Um, because one of the really interesting things you can do with Lambda um and .NET is you can actually run ASP.NET on Lambda. Um so you can there's a, there's a NuGet package you can add, which is something like Amazon Lambda ASP.NET Core Server Hosting. I really feel like they could have given that a shorter name, but anyway. Um <laughs> every time every time you I know we are good at you know we are good at naming. Yes, true. Yeah, true. naming so easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can, so you can, but you can run. So if you're using minimal APIs, it's like a single line of code. You builder dot services dot add AWS Lambda hosting passing what you're putting in front of Lambda, like API Gateway, um, and your ASP Net application will run on Lambda. Now, before AOT, you were t- if you look at that same web page, you were typically looking at like 1.1, 1.2 seconds. Um, so this is .NET 6 and minimal APIs. So you've typically got like 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 seconds of cold start. Um, as you said, Brandon, like you're getting over a second, that's becoming perceptible now. Um, but when we run some benchmarks with .NET 7 and native AOT and minimal APIs, again, I don't recommend anyone does this because Microsoft don't officially support it, but we were just interested um this is a minimal api running on lambda so what that means is 99 percent of all your requests take under a second um and then i think i've got dotnet 8 yeah so dotnet 8 Ooh, native aot with minimal apis that gets down as low as 800 milliseconds and on the dotnet 8 benchmarks i've started to put on the number of invokes so you'll see here for this benchmark 155,679 of the requests were warm starts 84 of the invokes for cold starts literally none and even within that 84 the max cold start time was 830 milliseconds and that's for ASP.NET on lambda compiled with native AOT. um so that when what with what i said at the start about the, the paradigm shift and the programming model that's different um this native AOT going a bit more ga <laughs> in terms of like it's not it's not full it's not full minimal apis um i can probably show i've probably got the code example actually um let's go into source let's go into you can tell i've put loads of prep into this can't you <laughs> um um okay I'll, let's talk i'll load this up and then we can we can um i'll come back to that in a sec um so yeah with with minimal apis with asp.net going something like ga.net 8 then that that opens up a whole bunch of super interesting use cases for lambda um yeah and i'll uh yeah, I feel like we've been we've been hammering cold starts. So if you're tired of us here, tired of us talking about it, apologies, but it is important. Um, but I do want to end with just one more recommendation because you know, I've been using serverless for for years for my mobile apps. Because again, I, my mobile apps and the app stores are free. I don't make any money off them, so I love serverless because it's super super cheap. I can pay a couple pennies every month. But um, what I've done and what you can do in your apps is you can you can also I don't want to say trick your users, but you can um, distract them. So there's there's an old story that there used to be a an office building and you know big tall office building. Lots of workers were coming every day, and they'd be you know maybe on time but running a little late for a meeting. And the elevator takes forever to come, and there's always uh, people complaining about how slow the elevators are, and the building looked into it. There's nothing they can do because, well, it's an elevator. It's got to be safe. We can't just make them fast and put people's lives in danger. And what they ended up doing was they installed mirrors in the lobby. So the elevators didn't get any faster. But now when people show up 
they're they're getting ready for their meeting. They're looking in the mirror, you know, adjusting their tie, maybe fixing their hair, make sure they look good. And in the middle of doing that, the elevator shows up. So even though the elevator took the same amount of time, they stopped getting complaints that the elevators were slow. And so what I do in my apps, if, if and when you download any of my apps from the app store, you'll see I have a little splash screen that loads up with some fun animations. Like I spin the logo, I add some text that swings along the bottom to kind of let you know like the app's launching. And it's that little distraction that, sure, maybe there's a bit of a cold start penalty because you're the first, first person to launch my app uh, in the morning. But what you're greeted with is, oh, that's a fun little animation and we're in. Okay, so you don't even realize that um, this is happening behind the scenes. So there's still also ways like that, <laughs> they'll say old school ways to get around it. Albeit our cold start times are dropping dramatically with every release of .NET, which I, or every release of .NET, <laughs> which I love to see. So James, you mentioned there's, a, there's another part of this paradigm shift. So yes, you have to be aware of cold start times, but um, you mentioned it's, they're all event-based. What, what does that mean? <laughs> um, Lambda is triggered by events. Like Lambda is reactive. You think of like the reactive manifesto, reactive programming, event-driven compute, that is what Lambda is. So Lambda simply reacts to things that are happening. And then things might be an API request. That equally might be a message on a queue. It might be a event published to an event bus. It might be a manual invoke because you want to manual invoke your functions for some reason. Um, so all that means is that Lambda only runs when it needs to do something. When there's nothing to do, it's not running. It's just sat doing nothing unless you're using provision concurrency. But if you are using provision concurrency, you're fully utilizing it because now you know the trick. Um, so that that is that is what it means by it's event-driven compute. Um, which might seem weird when you're building APIs. And there's a few different ways Lambda runs. One of the ways Lambda runs is what we know as the synchronous invocation model, which is where API Gateway sends an event to Lambda and then waits. Lambda returns a response. API Gateway picks up the response. Request goes back to the caller. Versus an event bus, whereas the event, event if you use an Amazon event bridge, that will then trigger Lambda and event bridge will go on doing other things and it just sends that event off and Lambda goes and does its own thing. Um, so that's what you mean by event-driven. Um, the reason that is a slightly different when i talk about a paradigm shift um i guess what i mean more there is is the actual programming model that you would use to build your functions um so for example if you have a look um i'm just trying to open some code up why is my laptop running so slowly today uh, <laughs> mine always does that on well, especially demos like this, where because we're live streaming on the internet, we're showing our video, we're showing our screen. Sometimes yeah, computer yeah. gets a little mad at you. Yeah, and I think uh, for a period I got a new, I got a new camera, um, and for a period I was running it on four K, and it absolutely just destroyed my laptop. <laughs> um, I think my laptop was trying to process the the four K ness of it. Um, so now you have to to buy a new laptop. You mean? Yeah, maybe that's, that's it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was Everybody a trick. Tweet, tweet at James' manager. Let him let him know that James needs the most yeah. powerful MacBook money can buy. Yeah, I very I very nearly actually joined. So I'm I'm on my work laptop here. I very nearly I've got an M2 Mac like my personal computer, and I very nearly joined from that for this exact reason because I was like. <laughs> I'm assuming at some point my laptop is going to not cope with this, and seemingly, see, I've got an example loaded up in Rider, but that's an example of how you can do things better. And I don't want to start with how you can do things better. I want to show you things the old way of doing things. But we can start with that because my laptop's not um, 
not at all. So when you build what we call a single purpose Lambda function, so we've talked about running ASP.NET on Lambda, that's that's a completely possible, completely okay way of doing things. If you're okay with, you know, if you're building like an internal HR system that's only accessed three times a week by, you know, John in accounts, then maybe running ASP.NET on Lambda is perfectly fine because one second code start, one and a half second code start for something that's accessed three times a week with the trade-off being you have literally zero operational overhead. Maybe that's a trade-off. Um, it's just John accounting. Just John in accounting. <laughs> John only pays our wages. We don't. We don't need to pay about John. Um, so, one of the, if, if you're not doing that, um, the other way you could build Lambda, and typically what we'd recommend as the best practice for building on Lambda is what you call a single-purpose Lambda function. What we mean by that is just a, a, a Lambda function that does one thing, one job, one job only, does that one job really, really well. And the way you define a Lambda function in that method is when the, if you think back to that cold start graphic from earlier, when Lambda gets to the point where it needs to initialize your function code, you give the Lambda service a string that's known as the handler string. And that's how Lambda knows how to invoke your function. Um, in the .NET world, that's made up of the name of the assembly, the namespace and the class, and then the method that you want to invoke. So what Lambda does when it starts up your code is it'll look for an assembly in your package, in your zip file, that's called, um, in this case, it'll look for stock trader dot set stock price handler. Um, no, yes, set stock price function. That's the name of my assembly. Once it finds the assembly, it'll load the assembly. Then it'll look for the class to initialize. In this case, the class would be stocktrader.setPriceHandler.Function. It'll initialize that class, and then the handler method, which will be the name of an actual method that needs to be a public method, that is what will actually get invoked. That is what your request will actually be passed into. And obviously, that that kind of method-based, loaded dynamically way of programming is kind of slightly different to what we're used to as .NET developers, because typically we just kind of have a lot of endpoints, maybe with some annotations on there, like this is a get, this is a post, this is a put, like building APIs, that is. Um, so that that is a little bit of a shift. And then because you don't have a framework like ASP.NET, you don't natively have things like dependency injection. Obviously, we all love dependency injection as .NET developers, but natively in Lambda, you don't kind of get that out of the box unless you're using ASP.NET again. Um, so we looked at this at AWS, and we built a library that is called the Lambda Annotations Framework. Um, and Lambda Annotations Framework is what you are seeing here. Um, so what the Annotations Framework does is it uses C-sharp source generators to actually generate a lot of the bootstrap type code at compile time. Um, so you see I've got a method here public method annotated with Lambda function. So this is going. This, this method is going to be its own Lambda function, and it's also going to be sourced by a REST API. So I add them two annotations, and at compile time, um, hopefully Rider plays ball. It did, excellent. So really cool feature of Rider that I only learned recently is that you can actually look at the source generated code within Rider. So what's going to happen at compile time is Rider is actually going to generate all of this code. So it's generating all the stuff. If I scroll down here, it's generating all of the stuff required to take that event that comes into Lambda, which is just going to be a JSON string 
in this case, it would be like a JSON representation of the API request. And it's going to do all the work to kind of convert that, serialize that, deserialize that, handle errors and return 500s or 400s. That annotation is going to add all of this bootstrap tack code that you can see here, which means your function can then get super, super simple. And your, 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 your function can just be, you know, what you actually need to do in your code. And you don't need to worry about all of that kind of boilerplate code around it. The other thing that unlocks is dependency injection. Yeah. So you see in the same Lambda function, I've also got a startup.cs file, which will look very familiar to anyone building with .NET. This just looks like any old startup.cs file, apart from this sneaky little annotation that's at the top here, which is Lambda startup. What that annotation does is tell the source generators to generate all of the code required for dependency injection. So it will actually set up the dependency injection container, but it, it will generate the code required to set up the dependency injection container, should I say. What that then means is in my actual function code, I can just use dependency injection like I'm used to. So you see I'm injecting a, um, a handler into my constructor here, um, and it, it brings that really familiar developer experience to Lambda, like your annotating methods. You can use dependency injection. You can build things in a way that at least I think is more familiar to, to don't know, this is the default way I build all my Lambda functions now. Um, it's using <laughs> and it brings that experience. Now, one thing to call out with, with dependency injection and anything you might be doing in startup is that the code you run in your startup file will directly impact your cold start because it's all this code here that's going to run as part of your cold start. So if you're doing loads of complicated things, you're loading secrets, you're doing all this crazy stuff as part of your startup, that's then going to impact your cold starts. So just be careful. Interesting. If you're using you might think, yeah, you started CS, yes, inject all the things. <laughs> yeah, actually that's, that's what I was just thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah is that, is that, that was my, my uh, so, sorry, Roland, that was my, 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 my fear when you said, hey, we can bring dependency injection into it because you, you have to be careful about the, the balance between, okay, I want more flexibility and be able to use dependency injection, but you have to be aware that dependency injection will, will impact your startup, your cold mm -hmm. start time. Yeah. The more you are doing there, the, so that's, if you can just build concrete object rather than use dependency injection, it will be faster. Absolutely. And, um, and something we probably could do, uh, and, and I think James, you're the one that wrote this code, so I'll, I'll throw the suggestion over the fence to you. Um, if, if we don't already, in the generated code, we could add like a, a trace.write line, or I'm not sure how the logging's done under the hood, um, that just says, you know, starting configure services and mm -hmm. kind of, you know, so. That way, if I go and try to figure out, like, why is my Lambda taking so long to load? I thought it would be faster uh, than in the logs. It would see, like, um, starting configure services. And you can kind of see, like, oh, all this code's happening. Like, my Lambda code's finishing in two seconds. But for some reason, configure services is taking five seconds. And that's probably exaggerated. But uh, even something like that could be, could be yeah, yeah. helpful. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea, that. 
Uh, I like it. That's the second thing. That's quite a nice segue, actually, Brandon, because that's the second thing you've thrown off to Vince and You're ruining my weekend <laughs> last weekend. Um, so sticking with annotations for a second um, and coming back to that whole thing about native AOT, both, um, we'll take a step even further back. <laughs> um, so when you're running .NET on Lambda, Lambda has a set of what it calls managed runtimes. These are runtimes that are managed and deployed by the Lambda service. So you've got .NET, .NET 6 currently, .NET Core 3.1 has just been depreciated. You've got Java, you've got Python, you've got Go, you've got, um, not this one, Node. Um, but then it's also got this capability of what's called a custom runtime, and that's where you can bring your own runtime to Lambda. Now, the Lambda service commits to only ever supporting LTS releases of all languages. So this isn't just .NET specific, like across all Python, Node, etc. Lambda will only support managed runtimes as uh, LTS releases as a managed runtime, which means if you want to run .NET 7 on Lambda, you need to do that using a custom runtime. Um, and if you're using a custom runtime, you need to do all of this crazy stuff here. So if you're using Whoa. a custom runtime, yeah, if you're using a custom runtime, you need to actually have like a program.cs file. You need to, well, you don't need to call it program.cs, but you, you probably should. Um, you need to have like a static main method, and then you actually need to manually bootstrap the runtime. Um, and the same applies if you're using native AOT. You need this code here to manually bootstrap the runtime, and you need to kind of know about all this additional stuff that you need to know how to create. And frankly, it's not particularly pretty code. Let's all be honest. Like, funk API That's... gateway, proxy request, I land the context. Ah, what do I do? <laughs> um, so that's something you've got to remember to do and know how to do. So what, thank you, Brandon, for this, but what Brandon suggested in a call we had a few weeks ago is could we not source generate some of that? And not quite right now, but there's an open PR that you can keep track of on the AWS Lambda runtime to kind of do all of this for you. So this is another example I've got here of another Lambda function. Um, and you see this Lambda function, much the same way as before, is just annotated with this Lambda function attribute, and it's annotated with this HTTP HTTP API attribute. I can't speak. Um, also, this Lambda function is .NET 7. So this is a .NET 7 Lambda function. Um, this runs on Lambda. This works perfectly well on Lambda. What you'll notice is if you can see, I did try and zoom Rider in, and I couldn't work out how to do it in the new version, but you'll see if you can squint, there's actually no program.cs file in here. What there is, is an assembly attribute called Lambda generate main. So you need to add this somewhere in your assembly. Um, and what that tells source generators, the, the Lambda annotations framework to do, is to actually generate this piece of code uh. here. So what this is actually going to do now is, because I've got two different Lambda functions within the same project, when you actually deploy this, you need to add an environment variable to say which of the two handlers to use. So you might have two independent Lambda functions you need to tell it which one to use using the environment variable. But we are now actually source generating this program.cs file for you. And this isn't merged right now. So if you go and try this right now, this will not work to be absolutely clear. But there is an open PR on the lambda.net um, runtime to, to add this. Um, hey, look at that. Someone found it. Um, so this will apply for if you're using .NET 7, if you want to start trying .NET 8 on Lambda, if you want to use native AOT, now we're in the future. So even if you're using native AOT in .NET 8, even though it's a managed runtime, you'll still, I don't know, actually, maybe we can change that. 
But in .NET 7, for sure, you need to do all this bootstrappy stuff. Um, so now if you're using Lambda annotations, all of this will be done for you. So thanks, Brandon. <laughs> Can you stop throwing features now, Renop? Thank you. I, I mean, so yeah, like James mentioned, we, we chatted about this. Uh, I'm super impressed, super thankful because, you know, something for me, like I like to stay as close to the bleeding edge as possible. Maybe not on the bleeding edge, but I like, I like my latest bits and, you know, with every new version of .NET comes performance improvements. You know, there's always blog posts from the .NET team about, hey, if you just change from .NET 6 to .NET 7, your app's going to run 10% faster. And if that's all I got to do, easy performance improvement, I go to my manager and I say, hey, give me a raise because I just made my app 10% faster. So uh, yeah, I always like to stay up on the latest and greatest. And yeah, looking at this code you're just sharing, James, like, I, I have an app <laughs> with a bunch of Lambda functions in it and they're all running on .NET 7. And I can't wait to see this hit uh, the main branch get released because I'm going to remove so much code <laughs> from my apps. And I've always said my favorite PRs are the ones that delete more code than add. Mm-hmm. So yeah. with this, I feel like I can, I can kind of just do what I want with Lambda. Like there's less restrictions I have to think about. Like, um, yes, you have to keep in mind about managed runtimes, but not really. With um, if we can write super easy code like this, and we can always have you know whatever version of .NET running, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to just make all of our lives so much easier. So, <laughs> thank yeah, you. There I'm, are, there I'm are a giddy of, with deleting code. <laughs> there are a couple of gotchas. Um, one gotcha and one thing to think about. Um, so when you're using a custom runtime versus a managed runtime, you pay for the cold start. So with a managed runtime, your cold starts are free. With custom runtimes, you pay for the cold start mm. as of right now. Now, if you're using native AOT, that could be pretty minimal, but that's just something to keep in mind is that you will then start being, you will start paying for it, providing you get past a million in bucks a month, of course. Um, as you say, that just thing- counts towards the default. Like you would just see that on your bill as um, like Lambda long time. Break. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not an extra charge. No. Um, and then the other, <laughs> the other, the other thing, the other interesting direction I'm thinking of taking this same bit of functionality is around um, APIs. So at the minute, that obviously generates all that code and says you need to set an environment variable to tell it which handler to use. Now, if you imagine, and I realize we're very short on time, so I'll try and be quick. Um, if you imagine you've got an API, um, you've got four endpoints on your API, and you want all of them endpoints to be natively compiled, they've all got the same memory requirements, security requirements, dependencies, all of that's the same. You probably want to run that in a single Lambda function. Um, but you will then need to write the code to map the right endpoint and method to the right handler under the hood, if that makes sense. Um, so the event that comes into Lambda will have like get and then slash whatever the path is that's been called. So whether we could use the same functionality to actually auto-generate all of that mapping for you, so then you can just annotate all these functions, deploy one Lambda function that is your entire API. Well, we're kind of getting to the point where it's rebuilding ASP.NET now, but you see you see the idea. And then you've got this, like you said, Brandon, you've got this one natively compiled binary that is your entire API, but you don't have all this ASP.NET gubbins that's slowing things down a little bit. Um, and under the hood, it's doing all that mapping on your behalf. So that's another interesting direction. I'm thinking of taking that same functionality. I need to talk to Norm about that before I have any more. <laughs> but, um, yeah. But again, I love it because all of, and 
especially using the annotations paradigm, like that's kind of become how we use .NET. You know, anything from ASP.NET Core, you're going to see similar annotations um, in there. Uh, even you know, in my .NET Maui world, we have this amazing library called the MVVM Community Toolkit that introduced all these annotations that will generate source code for you. So mm-hmm. I really see uh, annotations, source generations, that's the future um, for certainly building libraries, but yeah, for us as .NET developers consuming them. And so we're kind of heading towards this direction with .NET Lambdas where it's it's going to be just super easy to learn and use because it's this it's using all the same paradigms we're used to. Uh, kind of all the all the hard parts, all that code's auto-generated for us. And so not only do we get less code, but it's kind of the similar workflow that we've familiarized yourself with, with this like service collection builder pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's using that. And then with the annotations kind of leading the way. But my goodness, James, we have two minutes left. Uh, we have to have you back on the show. Certainly once yeah. uh, these PRs are merged and certainly once .NET 8 is stable, we've got the benchmarks out. We're, we've got to have you back. I had a whole <laughs> but... set of examples that we're going to show you as well that we didn't even get to, like serverless development without any Lambda, like how you can build applications without a single line of code. Like that's where I was going to go with this. But anyway. Wow. All right. Well, mm-hmm. well, stay tuned next time. Yeah. Uh, but James, for or folks who want to keep up the conversation, see all the latest bits on serverless, uh, where can they find you online? Twitter is probably the best place um, at Plant Power James. It's kind of, can I do this? Can I? Hey, there it is. Is there? Um, yeah, that's probably the best place. Reach out on Twitter. My my DMs are always open, so to speak. Um, always love to chat about any of this stuff. So yeah, please feel free to reach out. Anybody um, on YouTube, which Brandon shared at the start, our Francois shared at the start. Want to be there? There we go. Um, so yeah, thank you for having me on. It's been a it's been a pleasure. I could talk about this for hours. So yeah, yeah, and thanks so much for joining us again, James. Like we said. We'll have you back on in a couple weeks, couple months, whenever that timeline lands. And thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to the AWS Twitch channel so you never miss an episode. Francois and I will be back twice a month, first and third, first and third Mondays of every month. You can follow us here on the .NET and on AWS show. We'll see you next time.